Amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan uh, Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we're in the middle of a series. We're actually getting to the downhill slope of the series on Matthew. Those of you who have been here a while, <clears throat> we are going to finish the book of Matthew. Uh, it's been a while, but we've made our way through it. Funny thing is, we might say we're on the downhill slope, and Jesus is, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, on the uphill slope. Uh, up to the Mount of Calvary, uh, in fact, for the end of his life. Uh, in the worship folder, you should have received on one side is a passage of Scripture, and on the other side is an outline. So if you will, uh, follow along with me uh, as we read the passage, or as I read to you. Matthew 26, the first 16 verses, and then on the back uh, is the outline we'll be working through together. So... It'll also be on the screen behind me, so let's, let's read. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word this morning for us. Uh, I just want to ask you a couple of questions uh, as we get started here. Uh, What's the most extravagant, what's the most, uh, well, what's the most extravagant, let's go with that word, thing you've ever done or item you've ever purchased or vacation maybe that you've ever gone on? And why did you choose that particular thing or vacation? Uh, When you think of the word extravagant, what comes to mind? Or better yet, who comes to mind? Husbands, you're not allowed to look at your wives when I say that. Better yet, think about this question. What's the most valuable thing you have and why is it worth so much to you? Or what one thing that you don't currently possess would you be willing to give your life savings in order to get? Or what one thing that you currently possess, if you lost it, would make you not even want to go on anymore? Uh, As I mentioned earlier, we're in the midst of a series, a mini-series within the bigger series of Matthew called The Passion of Jesus. And we're looking at his journey to the cross, and today we're kind of beginning the final section of Matthew. Matthew 26, 27, and 28, and this is going to take us up to Easter. We're, We're going to see Jesus move slowly but surely toward the cross... And the climax of the gospel story. And the funny thing is, it's, 
it's mostly narrative. The last few weeks, Drew has uh, expounded on Jesus' teaching uh, and his smack in the face, beating over the head, any number of different ways you want to put that. It's been rough. Uh, but it's been great at the same time because we've seen not only uh, the foolishness of self-righteousness and legalism, but the power of the gospel to save us from that. But what we're going to see in these final few chapters is Jesus doesn't say a whole lot when you compare it with the previous 25 chapters. He says very little. It's, it's not really what he says, but it's what he does in the narrative uh, where we see and experience power. Now, why did we read the first 16 verses uh, rather than just what is intended to be our focus, which is verses 6 to 13. Well, I, I think if you understand why this account was placed between these others, it's going to help us better understand what's going on in terms of the big picture. Because what's happening here is, as if it wasn't already happening, but it's really beginning to set in this cosmic battle, the cosmic battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. I mean, it's starting. And what you're going to notice is the strategy for battle and the engaging in this battle between these two sides is so polar opposite in the way they go about it. But this morning our focus is going to be on verses 6 to 13, and we're going to see that this woman, most scholars believe is Mary Magdalene, the sister of Martha and the brother of Lazarus. We're going to see how her act is seen by the disciples in one way and by Jesus in a completely different way. And why? And I think the questions I asked just a minute ago about things that you find valuable, things that you think are extravagant, are going to help get at why this was, why one person sees her act this way and why another group of persons see it a different way. So three things as we look at this this morning. The disciples see what she has done as wasteful extravagance. Jesus sees it as beautiful devotion and then... What does it mean to be captivated by a dying life? Because that's why Mary did what she did. Why the woman did what she did. And I'm going to refer to her as the woman and Mary kind of interspersed throughout, so I hope that doesn't confuse anybody. Matthew doesn't name her, and I have a theory about that, but it's not coming until the very end of the sermon, so you have to hang out and listen for that. So no falling asleep. And I apologize if it looks like I slept in my clothes. I do get excited on the occasion that I get to preach But I assure you, I didn't sleep in my clothes because I was that excited. I woke up and getting in the shower, the power goes off. And I hadn't ironed my clothes yet. So I kind of went through the closet. Jamie, do these look like they're fairly with a flashlight? Yeah, they look fine. Put them on. Okay, great. So hopefully she didn't get me in too much trouble with all of you. So, wasteful extravagance. What is it that's so significant about what this woman does? Well, what she did has a lot to do with the culture that they lived in. And for us, it's, it's kind of weird. We don't use anointing oil or perfumes for the same reason that the first century Jews did. In the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, anointing was done to indicate or to invoke God's Spirit on somebody. It was the symbol of God's Spirit resting on that person. So when King David was anointed by Samuel, uh, the Bible says that the Spirit of God rushed on to David at that point. Uh, Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed for service. Although typically a priest or a prophet would anoint a king. Again, it's coming, but 
you know, think about this passage, who anoints the king? Only this isn't just some king. This is the king. Now, fast forward to the first century. Guests were typically anointed in Jewish homes. Uh, women would carry small containers, oftentimes much like uh, this woman does, around their necks, and they would often use it as perfume. But many times it, it was hygienic as well, right? I mean, no deodorant, no showers. And so when someone entered your home, it was typical to anoint them uh, kind of as a greeting, but also it might be the, the anointing oil might have some sort of a scent just to kind of, you know, Right, so people didn't always smell great. And furthermore, when you reclined at the table to eat, which they didn't sit in chairs to eat, they reclined at the table, so your feet go from the ground up to here, which is kind of at nose level for everybody kind of reclining around the table, you get the idea, right? It's fairly common to practice uh, anointing as someone entered uh, to counter maybe the odor of sweat and so forth. Now, most women had some kind of container like this, and it usually held a perfume or maybe an ointment of sorts. But whatever kind this was, other gospel writers tell us it was nard, which was a very expensive uh, extract, uh, extracted from a a plant that was very rare, which made it very expensive. It was in an alabaster flask, and these were pretty uncommon, pretty rare. So very expensive. And in other accounts, we're told that this was worth approximately 300 denarii, which was a year's wages. So let's take a meager estimate in today's numbers. This woman takes a flask worth, and again, I'm just estimating, $30,000. I don't know what the average wage in America is, but let's say it's $30,000. If I had a flask up here that you all knew was worth $30,000, and I broke it over Drew's head or Michael's head and anointed them with it, what would you think of me? What a nut. Now, I want to take a few minutes, though, try to get inside, try to incarnate into the mind and world of the disciples. It's not what she does or that she does what she does that really shocks them because it would have been entirely customary to anoint a rabbi, especially one of Jesus' caliber and Jesus' fame as he enters your home, you would anoint him, but you would only place a couple of drops, especially if something like this. You might just, you know, rub it on there. But we're talking about pouring out the entire contents on his head. And had she done what was expected, it doesn't seem like the disciples would have been quite as indignant or thoroughly annoyed is another way to maybe translate that. But it's her wastefulness that's so striking. And it's not that her action isn't just wasteful, it's extravagantly wasteful. Now, what do I mean by that? Think about what the word extravagant means. It means spending much more than is wise, exceeding the bounds of reason, spendthrifty, prodigal. And those are all ways the disciples would have characterized this woman. Now, keep in mind, just don't forget this, she just poured this all over Jesus' head. Not some other rabbi, not some random guy who walked in off the street. Jesus. This is the same guy the disciples have been with for the last three years who they had seen feed 5,000 people from two little minnows and a couple of barley loaves, who they had seen actually talk to the weather and it listened to him. 
And they're blown away that she would have the gall to waste 30 grand on his head. I mean, they had seen, at least a couple of them, had seen him transfigured on the mountain. I mean, gosh, it's so easy for me to look at them and say, what idiots? I mean, can't they remember? I would have remembered. I would know exactly who Jesus was. I'd have been amening Mary. Not. Right? Why would someone take their life savings, which was quite possibly the most valuable possession that that she had, and dump it out? I mean, if she wanted to do something significant with it, why not give it away to the poor? After all, thought the disciples, Jesus has just gotten finished telling us a parable about when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and he separates the sheep from the goats in Matthew 25. Uh, The sheep are those who feed the poor, who clothe the naked, who visit the prisoners, who give water uh, to the thirsty. I want to be a sheep. We should be caring for the poor. Why is she not, doesn't doesn't she get it? I mean, $30,000 goes a long way in helping poor people. Amen? I think so. The disciples view this as a waste, though, because their focus was on the gift and its value. And the most pressing concern for them was the proceeds. What could it be used for? And what's even better is, notice what they do in verse uh, 9. Right? Eight and nine. Particularly nine. They back up their reaction with a very pious reason. Right? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. I mean, Jesus, you just told us that that's what sheep do. But what's the problem? The problem is they have taken good principles, good things, caring for the poor, don't waste money, Everybody in here would agree with both of those statements, right? Don't waste money. And it's important to care for the poor. But what they've done is they've made a rule of those two things by which they can make value judgments on other people when they don't fit into the paradigm. And that's the very definition of legalism. It's when rules become more important than people. The disciples were, in effect, they were masking their self-righteousness, trying to look good in front of Jesus By appealing to a rule for how to use money. And so in attempting to make themselves look better than Mary, they've actually missed the point. That's what's frightening. And we're gonna, we're gonna see, I mean, it's, I start to laugh, really. I mean, in the coming weeks, you're gonna see how dense these guys really are. But also, you just wanna smack them as you're reading the Bible. I mean, you almost find yourself smacking the Bible. Don't you guys get it? Because we're going to see one of them deny Jesus. We're going to see him run. We're going to see him fall asleep. Because they just can't believe that Messiah would die. They just can't believe that what's going to happen to this guy they've pinned all their hopes and dreams on is that he's actually moving closer and closer to the cross and they want him moving further and further away from it. Now, How does Jesus react, or let me say this, what was his reaction and why? Why why did he say what he said in light of what the disciples said? You're going to see a tremendous contrast here. What's so amazing about this woman's anointing of Jesus 
is that the one who describes himself as meek and lowly in heart in Matthew 11, right? Take my yoke and learn from me. I'm meek and lowly of heart. I'm humble. The one who describes himself this way accepts this woman's lavish, extravagant outpouring of love. Do you see that? He doesn't say, I wish, really wish you wouldn't have done that. This is really kind of making me uncomfortable. He accepts it. Why does he accept it? Because he's worth it. Right? The meaning of the word worship, by the way, comes from two words put together. Worth-ship. Right? And over time, after you, your tongue gets kind of tired of saying worth-ship, worth-ship. So over time, the language just kind of moved it to worship. Right? This is kind of how language works. We just get lazy and we cut letters out. But that's originally what the word meant, worth-ship. What is the worth-ship of Jesus? $30,000 of ointment? Not, not even close. It's not, Jesus says, it's not that she's done a beautiful thing for me. No, she's done it to me. He says to these guys, this woman is worshiping me. So what the disciples see as waste, Jesus sees as worship. It's amazing. And I, and I, I got to admit, I mean, God is so, he's so amazing, he's so good. You know, I mean, uh, Sunday, uh, a week ago, <clears throat> Drew says, so you, you ready for next week? Did you look at the passage? I said, yeah. Are you excited? No. I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. I mean, it, it, there doesn't look like there's much there. And I'm sure he could have said, you, you dingbat, of course, there's tons there. Just, just look at it, right? But, you know, he was kind and gracious, and he even offered to preach for me. Uh, but the Lord is good because the Lord knew, you know, I needed this week. Drew needed a break. I needed this this week. I needed to be looking at this. I needed to be thinking about this. Now, I want you to notice, and I'm just going to describe for you, a profound difference in perspectives between the disciples and Jesus. The disciples have been following this guy for three years now, and they really believe he's the anointed one. He's the Messiah, because only Messiah could keep doing the things that this guy's been doing. But the problem is, he keeps talking about dying and suffering and being crucified. So, obviously, he's a little confused about his job as Messiah. Messiahs don't die, they don't get arrested, they conquer and they avenge and they set things straight, right? That's what Messiahs do. When Messiah comes, there's no more poverty, so why is this crazy woman not trading her ointment in for some cash and starting a food bank? I mean, if she really cares about the kingdom of God. And what's worse, Jesus is actually, this guy's actually sitting here and he's letting this woman waste this ointment I mean, this is the same guy who instructed us to take up the leftovers after he fed 5,000 people so that nothing was wasted. I mean, make up your mind. Are you for waste? Are you pro-waste? Or are you against waste? Make up your mind, Jesus. But notice the perspective of Jesus. Jesus is entering the last week of his life. The last week of his life. If you had seven days to live, you were going to die next Sunday How would you live the next seven days? I want you to really be thinking about that because as we 
work through it in the next, I don't know, six or seven weeks, or whenever Easter is, slowly you're going to notice how Jesus lives the last six or seven days of his life. He knows what lies ahead of him is certain death, certain pain, certain suffering, certain torture, certain mocking. And this anointing is getting him one step closer to that point. He says, she is prepping my body for burial. And whether she knew it or not, Mary was moving Jesus toward the cross. The inescapable reality of his life is death. Why? Because he said, my meat and my drink, I mean, what I feed off of, what... What, what sources my soul is my dad's will. I love to do what my dad says, do. So I want you to see the contrast. It's, it's why I read the first five verses and then the last three in the passage there. As the chief priests and the elders are plotting the death of Jesus, where are they? They're in the palace. As they're plotting his death, Jesus, the true king, is preparing for his death in the house of a leper. It's the most vulnerable. It's the least powerful. In this instance, and in this culture, a woman. It's a woman who gets it. It's a woman who realizes who he is. It's not the most powerful. It's not the most religious. I think the last couple of weeks have been pretty clear on that. This woman is treating Jesus as he should be treated. It's much like his birth. Go back to his birth. The so-called king is in the palace. The true king is in a cattle stall, right? And every layer of society should be running to see him, but it's the scummy shepherds who get the invitation from heaven to go see him. The most religious in first century Judaism are plotting his death and the most humble is anointing him for death. I mean, it's ama- the, the contrast is amazing. Now, I, I just want to illustrate this for a second with a story uh, of a lady that some of you may have heard of and some of you may have not. Her name was Lilius Trotter. Uh, her father died when she was 12. Uh, she was the, son, or the, uh, the daughter of a, a pretty well-to-do family in Victorian England in the 19th century. And she and her mother, uh, when she was in her 20s, went on vacation to Venice, not California, but Italy, okay? Uh, And they were staying at the same hotel with a famous art critic, English art critic of the time. His name was John Ruskin. And because uh, he he was well-known, Trotter's mother gave him some paintings. Lilius loved to paint. I mean, she'd paint what she saw outdoors, she'd... She'd paint people. She'd paint all kinds of things. And she was incredible. But her mother you know, was a little biased. So her, her mother decided that she would push a few of these paintings toward Ruskin's way just to get his take on things. He was so impressed that when they came back to England, he remained in contact with them, and he told Lilius, if you keep painting, I will ensure, and I, w- I predict you might be the greatest at least one of the greatest English painters of the 19th century. Your paintings are so incredible. Keep keep doing it. But instead, she began volunteering with the YWCA among the street children of London, and eventually she moved to Algeria as a missionary to Muslims. 
Today, uh, there's an organization called Arab World Ministries that was what grew out of the Algiers Mission Society, which Lilius Trotter started. Now, what's powerful is what she wrote to John Ruskin after she moved to Algeria. Now, get this. Never has it been so easy to live in half a dozen good, harmless worlds at once. Art, music, social science, games, motoring, the following of some profession, and so on. And between them, we run the risk of drifting about the good, hiding the best. It's easy to find out whether our lives are focused, and if so, where the focus lies. Where where do our thoughts settle when consciousness comes back in the morning? Where do they swing back when the pressure is off during the day? She says, dare to have it out with God and ask him to show you whether or not all is focused on Christ and his glory. So Ruskin saw a waste. Trotter sees worship. And what Trotter saw as a waste, Ruskin saw as worship. I mean, these two could not have been on polar ends of the spectrum. But, <laughs> you know, as, as, uh, as amazing as that is, we've got uh, to get to the end. We've got to get to the question, why? Why did this woman anoint Jesus? And why, how does Jesus, and why does he say this stuff about the gospel at the end? I mean, she's just anointed him for burial, and now he starts talking about the gospel, and being proclaimed in the world and her memory and all that stuff. I mean, what's that all about? Well, a couple of questions that I want to try and answer in this third point. First, why did she anoint him? Well, she anointed him because she had been with him. When Mary is mentioned in the Gospels, you often see her listening to Jesus' teaching, sitting at his feet, enjoying him, being captivated by him. Now, do you want to know what the word captivated means? Captivated by a dying life. Why did I choose that word? Well, it means to attract or hold the attention or interest of, to enchant. It's what we hope we do every Sunday at this particular time in the worship service. We hope we're captivating you. We're just enchanting you, you know? Like one of those dudes in the Middle East playing the recorder with the snake, right? And you're just... You're just enchanted by our message, right? I mean, that's kind of a funny way to put it. But at the same time, you know what I mean. If you've ever been enchanted by something, if something has grabbed your attention, but not just for a second, but actually held it, like for two and a half hours, or over three, as was the case when I first saw Schindler's List, I sat there absolutely transfixed for three hours at the movie screen. Goodness, I can't believe what I'm watching. There's a couple of uh, passages that kind of reveal this to us. The first is John 12. In John 12, we see Martha serving and Mary anointing Jesus. It's the parallel passage to the one we're reading in Matthew 26. Martha's focus in that instance, doing the right thing, being pious, being a good host, right? Mary's focus, Jesus. In Luke 10, which we read on Thursday, as I recall, for community Bible reading, okay? Now, now th- this, one is, this one is just mind-boggling. Again, Martha serving. Mary sits at Jesus' feet and listens to his teaching. 
The only way you can become captivated by Jesus is to spend time at his feet. That's why we have community Bible reading. Because if you daily sit at his feet, what will happen? You will start to become captivated by him. Mary finds more value in Jesus and his word than Martha does. Luke says, I love this verse. Luke says, verse 40 of Luke chapter 10, Martha was distracted with much serving. And she was distracted because she valued appearance and human praise more than sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha was controlled by the opinions of others. She wanted everyone to think she was a good host, that she had all her ducks in a row, that her house was clean, that the dishes had been done properly. And she gets upset with her sister because Mary, Mary's making her look bad. She says to Jesus, she, she, she has the gall to say to the Lord of glory, don't you care that my sister is not helping me? I mean, we're trying to put on a nice meal here for you. Don't you care? The problem is Martha is enslaved to other people. And that yoke makes her anxious, makes her distracted. But notice Mary. Mary's enslaved to Jesus, and she has a deep affection for him. And his yoke produces what? Produces an ability to sit and produces an ability to listen. I mean, she anoints him because she had been with him. But after explaining Mary's anointing as a preparation for burial, Jesus goes on in verse 13 to say something that I mean, doesn't really doesn't quite fit. He says, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, there are two things I want to point out. First, Jesus links the gospel with Mary's beautiful act of worship. How does he do that? Or why does he do that? Because what she has done mirrors the gospel. Now, get this. She was willing to empty all she had to have Jesus. She wanted a Jesus-filled future, right? Contrast that with Judas. Judas willing to accept money to get rid of him. Mary's giving away money to have him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he was willing to empty himself to set aside all the glories and riches and honor of heaven and be poured out as an offering. I mean, literally, his side was was stabbed and blood and water poured out. So while Mary's act mirrors Jesus' act, it's only through Jesus' life, blood being poured out in submission to his Father's will that you and I get life. Right? He pours himself out. But here's the great part. We get his spirit poured into us. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I was thinking about, I I just, if I'm not tapping into that, gosh, I I am just wasting the gift. But beyond that, what's also amazing is Jesus says, this woman, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are. We are 2011, and this happened in, let's say, I don't know, pick a date. 5 AD. We're still talking about her. I mean, Jesus said this that many years ago, and here we are, 2011, we're still talking about it. 
But it's not who did it that matters. And this is why I think Matthew doesn't say her name. Because it's not who that, who uh, did it that matters. It's what she did. Because that's where you get to see the gospel. Now, where in the world would you and I get an ability to pursue a dying life? Where would we have the ability, like Lilius Trotter, to give up a career of fame and fortune in Victorian England to be a wonderful painter? Where do we get the courage to decide, you know what, I'm going to move to Algeria. What? I mean, Algeria? Are you serious? Where do we get the ability to do that? Well, I came across this quote this week, and I can't remember who said it, but as soon as I read it, it was like, boom, that's going in the sermon. So I apologize, I can't give uh, kudos to who said it, but they said this, when people start to be captivated by Jesus and by his path to the cross, the love this produces is given to extravagance. That's it. We can only begin to pour ourselves out and to plunge our resources into the lives of others if we know we've been poured into. You can't pour out unless you know you've been poured into. Because what are you going to give from? What are you going to pour out? Nothing. Because you, you ain't got anything. That's how we go after the dying life. And the message of this passage, the call of the gospel this morning for us is to do what Mary did. My question to you is, are you willing to stake your entire future on Jesus so that your identity, your entire identity is tied to him? She gave him all she had, right? I mean, her dowry, her, her 401k, her retirement, her life, all right there to Jesus. Her entire identity is tied to him. Are you willing to stake your whole future on him, all that you have, all that you are, all that you ever will be. Because if you've not been captivated by the extravagant love of God in Jesus Christ, then so much of the work of the church will seem to you like waste. It will seem like a waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of resources. But if the love of Jesus has overwhelmed you, if the extravagant grace of God has changed your heart so that what's most valuable and glorious to you is Him, Him, there's no limit to where and how we pursue a dying life. And there's no limit to where and to how He might call you to go and die for Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand absolutely transfixed this morning, enchanted, captivated uh, by your work on our behalf. Uh, That you, who were most beautiful and most glorious and most holy, would willingly lay that aside uh, and come for those of us who were uh, most ugly and despised and rebellious and wicked so that you might be counted as most rebellious and most wicked and most evil and give to us the credit, the account, the robes of righteousness to stand before the Father and be considered most holy and most beautiful and most glorious. So we pray, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, that you would enable us to be a people 
who pour ourselves out because we have you uh, to value you and your kingdom and your beauty, that that would captivate our souls, not this world. And that the more our hearts are captivated by that, the more our lives would change and we would be poured out on behalf of others, that we might love them for their sake and yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one note, I just wanted to inform everyone, uh, Sally Goodwill, who is uh, a member of Redeemer, received a call earlier this morning. Her mother is uh, quite sick and could possibly be dying uh, you know, any, any day now. Uh, and so she is traveling to Mississippi to be with her mother the rest of her family. So uh, if you would, please be keeping her and her family in uh, your prayers today. Um, the Whatever your circumstances might be, uh, whether you're driving to Mississippi because your mother could be dying, uh, or whether you've got to go out today, uh, tomorrow, this week, face something that you don't know how you're going to face, the promise of the benediction, and the promise of the song we just sang is, if before the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect plea and my, my life is hidden with Christ in God, I can go knowing the promise of this benediction is true. Uh, I have his peace and I have his face uh, to send me out. So take this as a, a blessing over you, no matter what the circumstances might be. Uh, and the ability for you to pour yourself out, this is God's pouring into you. So receive it as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.